Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. I want to thank Skylight Bookstore for allowing this space. Um, it's a book that's always been supportive of um, LGBT writers. Uh, we have an GLBT section here, and we've been doing um, LGBT events here, you know, forever and a day. Um, also, I do want to say, if you are into the whole LGBT lit reading thing, um, curator Hank. Henderson's here. Just raise your hand real quickly, and he does a, a monthly reading series at uh, a mystery, not mystery books, at Stories Bookstore at uh, in Echo Park. So that should be lots of fun. So the, what I asked the writers to do tonight, so I'd, I'd emailed a, a lot of writers. Can you do this reading? And the reading is um, not about your own work. And actually, surprisingly, a lot of writers were really happy about that. You know? <laughs> it was like they were tired of reading their own work. You know, so, so I said, yeah, to to uh, in honor of LGBT History Month, can you read the work of a writer, an LGBT writer, who meant something to you, who influenced you? Um, and I got a lot of people who actually emailed me back and says, "No, what sounds like a great idea. I wish I can do it. They can't be here, but um, it was great to hear that so many writers in Los Angeles said things like Essex Hemphill meant a lot to me. You know, to get that James Baldwin meant a lot to me. You know, to to hear that from writers, and um, the writers here today uh, was able to, you know, come by, um, and present their work. And something I asked them to do also was to please email me your writer because I didn't want us to double double up. And um, that did not happen actually, that everybody had their own writer and no one doubled up because there, and it became clear there were so many queer writers out there to choose from that you can actually, you know, you, that, that you can have this group of eight writers and no one will choose the same writer, you know, so that was really, really wonderful to hear, so. Um, and uh, the way this came about is that, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, June is, uh, is Pride Month, LGBT Heritage Month, and um, there are a number of activities happening throughout uh, the city of Los Angeles. There's Pride in West Hollywood. Um, the mayor's office had some events uh, last weekend, and um, there'll be photo exhibits. There'll be, you know, dances. There'll be lots of dances, you know, there's <laughs> like, you know, lots of things to celebrate LGBT pride, but there, there wasn't a literary event um, to sort of uh, bring it up, which was really interesting to me. And uh, so Carrie, who is the general manager of the store, says, well, let's do one. And so that's what brought us here today. Um, the way it'll work is that um, so I can relax. I will read first. I'll read something first, you know. So I can, you know, and then I'll be followed by uh, Raquel Gutierrez, uh, then Stephen Rains, then Lisa Yee, then Hope Edelman, then Frederick Smith, then Leslie Schwartz, then Amai Tolliver, and uh, um, Jesse Navarro. And what I ask them to do is to uh, read for about five minutes, and and for like maybe a minute or two, talk about what was it about that writer that that meant a lot to you. The um, writer I chose was Octavia Butler, 
Octavia Estelle Butler, born June 22nd, 1947 to February 24th, 2006, was an American science fiction writer, one of the best known among the few African American women in the field. She has won both Hugo and Nebula Awards in 1995. She became the first science fiction writer to receive the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. And um, I will say I have written two fan letters in my life, two. The first one was to Lee Majors, the six million dollar man. <laughs> that, was, that was the first one I'd ever written to. And the second one was to Ms. Octavia Butler. And um, uh, I'll read it to you, I still have it. Um, you know, thank God for computers. And uh, something she was talking about, she created this beautiful character named Lauren Olamina, um, a, a teenage girl who's growing up, and uh, I was writing a book, and she's writing a book, um, and called Earth Seeds. And there was a continuing theme in that, in that book that she was writing. She was basically uh, a girl trying to create her own religion, which is really interesting. And um, there was a phrase that kept coming up in the book is, uh, God is change was uh, what she kept saying, and I wrote this letter, uh, May 18th, 2002. Wow. Dear Ms. Butler, I read Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents during a very difficult time in my life. I felt creatively stuck. My relationship was slowly and surely ending. As a matter of fact, when we got into a fight, when my partner at the time got into a fight, I remember specifically taking this book and throwing it across the room. I was so mad. So, uh, my day job was bleeding me dry. I needed to find a new place to live. I turned 30 and was reevaluating my existence. Then I came across your parable novels, and God has changed became my mantra. I firmly believe that the universe gives me exactly what I need when I need it. Your books were what I needed. Lauren Alamina was a brilliant creation. I learned that a good life is like a good novel filled with joys and setbacks, wonder and hardships. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for creating her. I will forever see those books as major markers in my life. I published my first novel and I hope my work will touch someone the way your work has touched me. You are an inspiration to me, your fan, Noel Illumit. So, from Parable of the Sower, chapter one. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Earthseed, the books of the living. Saturday, July 20th, 2024. I had my recurring dream last night. I guess I should have expected it. It comes when I struggle, when I twist on my own personal hook and try to pretend that nothing unusual is happening. It comes to me when I try to be my father's daughter. Today is our birthday, my 15th and my father's 55th. Tomorrow I'll try to please him, him and the community and God. So last night I dreamed a reminder that it's all a lie. I think I need to write about the dream because this particular lie bothers me so much. I'm learning to fly to levitate myself. No one is teaching me. I'm just learning on my own, little by little, dream lesson by dream lesson. Not a very subtle image, but a persistent one. I've had many lessons, and I'm better at flying than I used to be. 
I trust my ability more now, but I'm still afraid I can't quite control my directions yet. I look forward toward the doorway. It's a doorway like the one between my room and the hall. It seems to be a long way from me, but I lean toward it, holding my body stiff and tense. I let go of whatever I'm grasping, whatever has kept me from rising or falling so far. And I lean into the air, straining upward, not moving upward, but not quite falling down either. Then I do begin to move, as though to slide on the air, drifting a few feet above the floor, caught between terror and joy. I drift toward the doorway, cool, pale light glows from it, then I slide a little to the right, and a little more. I can see that I'm going to miss the door and hit the wall beside me, but I can't stop or turn. I drift away from the door, away from the cool glow into another light. The wall before me is burning, fire has sprung from nowhere, has eaten in through the wall, has begun to reach toward me, reach for me. The fire spreads, I drift into it, it blazes up around me. I thrash and scramble and try to swim back out of it, grabbing handfuls of air and fire, kicking, burning, darkness. Perhaps I awake a little. I do sometimes when the fire swallows me. That's bad. When I wake up all the way, I can't go back to sleep. I try, but I've never been able to. This time, I don't wake up all the way. I fade into the second part of the dream, the part that's ordinary and real, the part that did happen years ago when I was little, though at the time it didn't seem to matter. Darkness, darkness, brightening stars. Thank you. Next up is Raquel Gutierrez. Raquel is a community-based performance writer, playwright, community organizer, and cultural activist. Gutierrez is one of the co-founding members of the performance ensemble Bochlalas de Panachtichlan. <laughs> A community-based and activist-minded group aimed at creating a visual vernacular around queer Latinidad in Los Angeles. She has performed nationally as a performance and literary artist, has been a community documentarian for the last 15 years, published in journals and anthologies, served on a number of grant panels, and is currently the manager, manager of community partnerships for and a member of the ensemble at Cornerstone Theater Company, the leading purveyor of community-based theater in the United States. Please welcome Raquel. Gutierrez. Hello, good evening everyone. It's so nice for everyone to join today. Um, you know, have you ever done one of those values exercises at work where they ask you to identify your top 15 values and you rattle off things like love and family and communication and, and uh, passion and risk and freedom? Um, and uh, and then they the next round in that exercise is you whittle it down to like okay now name your top five and now name your top three well my top three in that exercise were passion risk and community and then I was asked to whittle it down to one and uh, the one that the thing that I found out you know through this exercise was that I value community the most so. Um, so th this this type of event is really great and is really important to me, and um, in 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 identifying the writer that had uh, 
you know, touch me in a way that uh, that continues to propel my my own um, uh, creative work forward. I th I thought back to community and uh, and community within um, our our within the queerness and and. LGBT. I prefer I prefer queer over LGBT. I think about um, where do I fall into our radical genealogy, and where is my place in this divine history? And uh, and I think about the generations of writers ahead ahead of me, before me. You know, anyone anyone that's ten to fifteen to twenty and so on years older than me. And then I think about the people that are no longer there with them. And, um, and I think about Los Angeles, and uh, and I think about Gil Cuadros, who is a, um, I'm going to read the bio here in the back, about the author. Gil Cuadros published stories and poems in Indivisible, High Risk 2, and Blood Whispers. His work is also on the compact disc, Verdict and the Violence, Poet's Response to the LA Uprising. He was awarded the 1991 Brody Literature Fellowship and was one of the first recipients of the Penn Center USA West Grant to Writers with HIV. He lived in Los Angeles until his death in 1996. And in 1996, he was 34 years old. He was, uh, you know, um, I shared this information with friends on my Facebook profile, and uh, I'm, uh, the comments that I, I got, one was from uh, Terry Wolverton, I'd been doing workshops for for a long time, and uh, you know she revealed that Gill had been in in her, one of her classes at the center, and that uh, when he was diagnosed in 1988, um, that's when he got serious about writing and uh, and joined her workshop, and uh, you know wrote wrote wrote, and everyone fell in love with him, uh, and he produced and. Um, these beautiful uh, vignettes and prose and poetry um, about growing up uh, Mexicano, a child of Mexican immigrants, and being part of a, of an extended family that included farm workers and and um, other types of sexual outlaws and uh, and you know he writes about it in City of God, um, published by City Lights, and. Um, so, and he was part of an uh, organizing endeavor in Los Angeles called uh, Viva, which was Latino um, uh, artists, Latino queer artists um, responding to the pandemic. And uh, Viva is also the parent organization for, that ultimately bequeathed their 501c3 status to an organization that I was a part of called Tongues. A project of Viva, which was a queer women of color um, oriented project around showcasing the varieties of uh, the feminisms and varieties of uh, queer women of color work. So with that said, I would love to read the poem, Conquering Immortality. Conquering Immortality for Marcus Antonio. Down on Hollywood Boulevard, past the McDonald's, between Numero Uno Pizza and the boarded up Ernesto's restaurant lies a ruin. In its time, the Egyptian was a palace, a movie temple. Cast heads of pharaohs greeted at the entry doors, while twin dogs of Anubis guarded the lobby filled with lotus capital columns, tut mask wall sconces, and hieroglyphs. I remember before I got sick, my blood thin and unable to clot, before the time of lovers' funerals, and we only used first names on their quilts. John. David, Mark, 
The Egyptian was a derelict theater. It had already amassed into three screens and much of the ornamentation removed, eviscerated. I came down to Hollywood to see a movie, started my journey at the Chinese, made sure my steps didn't land on any star's name because I had respect for the Walk of Fame. I just turned 21. This black man, standing at the corner of Highland, watched me coming down the street. I waited for the red light, and he came up behind me, next to my ear, made a, a loud slurping noise. I could feel his tongue long and wet. I turned to face him. He was big, about a foot taller than me, hands enormous. One rubbed a gold unk across his chest, while his other hand grabbed between muscular legs. Again, he made this slurping sound, looked me down, then up. I started to walk across the street, taking larger steps, turning only when I got to the other side. There I could see him, this shit-eating grin across his face. At that time, I was jacking off regularly to fantasies of getting screwed by men, straight men, their wives in bed with us in pink furry nightgowns. <laughs> the husband and I would simply forget the woman, and when I was about to come, it would just be me and him. I would sleep in the curb of his arm, the sinews of his bicep, a son wrapped in his father's protection, as if masculinity could save me. During the third dynasty, Egyptians began to preserve corpses from putrefaction, removing their entrails most liable to decay. Motivated by fear, they believed the deceased could come back to life. So they built elaborate tombs stocked with food and drink, an offering table laden with goose and calves heads, bread and flowers, all to keep the dead in their place. To produce a semblance of life in the afterlife, the embalmer's efforts were limited to placing cloth soaked in resin on the body. Shaping it into human form, the nose, mouth, external genital organs were all faithfully molded. The mummy of King Dekar has survived in a bad state, but nevertheless retains scraps of skin, muscle, tendons, ligaments, blood vessels, nerves. Inside, traces of resin on ribs testify to the attention of the embalmers, as do the canopic jars near the body. The man followed me into the theater, the movie just about to start. I leaned back into my chair, my arms behind my head like wings. I stared into the ceiling, waiting for the lights to dim. Above a large scarab, whose grilled wingspan graced the entire dome, dominated my attention. In school, I had learned that the scarab represented the daily course of the sun, its hind legs pushing a ball of cow dung. As the light from the ceiling diminished, I felt the man sit next to me, his arm pressing next to my own, his leg rubbing up rhythmically against mine. There was a sound of film being taken up by the reel, the blank beginning of scratched lead tape, the stereo kicking in and my own breath, then his. There is an episode of The Twilight Zone that always runs in my head. Anne Blythe played an actress who was being interviewed by this young, handsome reporter. She was a successful actress, living lavishly, pool and large garden, taken care of by an elderly relative. The actress wore a scarab amulet, and the reporter noticed it in all of her photographs. The elderly lady who lived there seemed to want to talk to the reporter to say something to him, but the actress kept on interfering. 
Finally, the elderly woman told the reporter that she was actually the daughter of the actress, that the actress was much older than she appeared, and the scarab kept the woman young and immortal. The Egyptian theaters sisters were the more famous Grauman's Chinese and the demolished Metropolitan noted for its Persian-inspired concrete forms. Even though the Chinese survives, uh, most of its beauty has suffered compared to its original decor of rare tropical trees, water fountains dripping from lotus flowers, a ceiling lantern that concealed organ pipes. The Egyptian has been closed for a long time. It happened suddenly. The gates were just locked up. But looking back, I can see its demise like the progression of a disease. How, without warning, simple things like white cells are no longer enough. Or you rub your neck muscles and feel a knot of flesh, and it hurts, and it makes you tired. And you notice your tongue isn't as red as it should be. And you can't tell if you sweat in bed because you have too many blankets, and you don't want to panic but you've seen it before with other people. And you call them, ask them, but they don't know. And you can tell they're annoyed because this is like the hundredth time someone has called them trying to get information, telling them their symptoms instead of going to doctors and finding out that way. The clues fly around like letters blown from the marquee, only decayed hieroglyphs, words that make no sense. The man invited me to follow him into the bathroom stall. Closing and closing us in painted papyrus reeds, a river made in tile. I asked him his name, but he said it wasn't important and undid my belt. He made me stand on the toilet seat, grab my hardening dick and balls, and stuffed it all into his mouth. I had never let anyone touch my asshole before. He made small circles, designs. I could feel the edge of his fingernail trying to press in. I thought I was going to come. He then grabbed my hips and turned me around, made me suck the finger he'd been using to get it real wet. Inside his palms, I noticed calluses, yellow as an animal paw. I could taste myself on his finger, my spit coating past his knuckle. He again placed it against my ass. I couldn't loosen up. He kept on saying, baby, ah, oh, baby. I looked at my short pants down around my ankles, could see that he was spraying his white cum all over the insides, the material darkened where he shot. The usher's hand was large and loud, banging flat on the door, his face acne-scarred and hair shorn. He called us damned faggots. As if this was all too common, a look of tiredness across his mouth. There were two other ushers in the bathroom, bored, having to bust up another couple of fags like nameless creatures fucking in plain sight who needed to be shamed, and we begged for it. Seth was a jealous god and the brother of Osiris. He had already tricked Osiris into a jeweled coffin, floated him off in the Nile. Isis, the wife and sister of Osiris, found him and brought him back to life. Seth, enraged, dismembered Osiris and scattered his remains throughout Egypt. Isis found all the parts except the male organ, which was swallowed by a fish. Osiris became the god of the dead. In many inscriptions written on the sarcophagi, an invocation can be read. Greetings, O thou art chief of the great, I am Osiris. All the dead become Osiris. I've had to move into Hollywood because it's closer to my doctors, the food bank, legal services, and I don't drive anymore because I can't afford a car on social security, so I take the bus, walk around a lot. After the big earthquake, I went touring Hollywood, surprised by how, feel how building facades were leaning into the street. 
how entire cornices, murals of leg legendary stars, storefront windows were blown onto sidewalks and gutters, so much debris. The city is going to hell. An evangelist yelled at me through a bullhorn, disease, riots, bloods, and fires, now this, repent. I shook my head as if to shiver out all his hatred Xeroxed on a piece of paper he tried to force into my hand. We felt a small tremor, and both the evangelist and I took it as a sign that God was on our side, as if God could choose between his children, as if he loved one more than the other. I look like the city, only bare bones of what I used to be, shitting endlessly, no test, no pill can stop me from wasting. The virus attacks my brain, invades my spine and every organ, my cock limp and floundering, as if my death would be a surprise. I stop to turn around from the gated Egyptian, can see the walls have broken between bricks, the roof apparently falling apart, tiles strewn on the sidewalk. Towards the back, a great hole has opened while the adjacent wall seems to have separated and now leans outward. There have been talks of saving the Egyptian before, articles on its historical importance of redevelopment. Nothing more has been done. As I enter my seventh year of diagnosis, where reports of antiviral promise and T-cell counts have lost their assured importance, I see my life as a series of facades, each layer in erosion, white patches along the sides of my mouth, a shortening of breath, a burning pain in my calves, each taking an ability away from me to where keeping simple food down is what is of value. Forgotten is career and income, no longer the depiction of my personality, but disabilities are what frame me. And what is left after my body torn down is my soul. I notice as I stand here that today is beautiful, that the sand-colored walls of the Egyptian, yellow like dark mustard, set out against this blue sky. Along the roof line, frescoed palm leaves in azure gold and blood red look as vibrant as if painted today. The walls of this building are sturdy like myself, guarded by the spirits of long, dead stars. And even if the parapets are bulldozed in haste, this sacred space can never die out. I steal underneath the chained gate, enter through shattered lobby doors, glass at my feet. I grab the serpentine necklace around my neck, green scarab the color of the Nile. I am protected by myth, a dream of immortality, enfolded in this theater's tomb-like darkness. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raquel. Um, our next reader is Stephen Rains. After earning a degree in creative writing at the University of South Florida, he published his debut poetry collection, Your Dead Body is My Welcome Mat, <laughs> in 2001. A two-time recipient of Los Angeles County's Department of Cultural Affairs Artists in Residency grant, Rains organized and taught the first ever autobiography poetry workshop for GLBT seniors and edited an anthology of their writings, My Life is Poetry. He has taught writing workshops around the country to GLBT youth and people living with HIV and recently received his master's in clinical psychology from Antioch University. His newest collection, which was amazing by the way, is called Inheritance. It came out in 2010. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Raines. Hi, thank you. <clears throat> I know that was a long title for a first book, right? It's the title you come up with when you're 25 and then um, when you're 10 years older, you think, ooh, inheritance, just one word. <laughs> so I want to thank Noel um, for asking me to be a part of this event. I was so excited, and I was trying to think of 
a writer uh, to choose, and I felt like Sophie had an easier choice. And I knew that I would choose a female because it took me a while to find a male writer who I identified with and liked. And so the writers I kept thinking about were Anais Nin, Cheryl Clark, Sapphire, Dorothy Allison. But there was one poet that I kept thinking of and I kept going back to, and that's Minnie Bruce Pratt. She was born in 1946 in Selma, Alabama, and she took her PhD in literature at the University of North Carolina. She said that her greatest education came from her grassroots organizing with women in the army base of Fayetteville, North Carolina, and through teaching at historically black universities. Pratt unflinchingly unflinchingly examines her life through poetry. The focus of her tight collections reflect her life path and emotional evolution. Pratt wrote poetry during college, but had stopped during her marriage to a man. She began again when she fell in love with another woman in 1975. She stated, I returned to poetry not because I became a lesbian, but because I had returned to my own body after years of alienation. Her first book, now out of print, The Sound of One Fork, was inspired by the women's liberation and gay and lesbian liberation movements of the 1970s. Pratt took almost all took on almost all aspects of publishing the book and toured the country selling thousands of copies. And this was long before we knew the DIY acronym. Her second collection, We Say We Love Each Other, uh, was praised by our own uh, LA poet, Eloise Klein-Healy. And she said that Pratt has, has written a holy book, poetry that will get to you and rearrange your heart. Her next poetry book, um, was the first of hers that I encountered, Crimes Against Nature. It won the 1989 Lamont Poetry Award and was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. It tells the story of Pratt's life after she came out, the ending of her marriage, her unsuccessful battle to keep custody of her children, and her new life as a lesbian. The heavy content was praised for its unadorned voice not being histrionic or sentimental. The poetry collection was effective in showing that the real crime against nature is violence and oppression, not lesbianism. The next book I devoured was She, He. This book was not billed as poetry, but its tight language, thoughtful reflections, and emotionality is the type of prose that only a poet can write. Minnie Bruce Pratt writes about gender and sexuality after she meets and has a relationship with transgender writer Leslie Feinberg. This is not a punkish or rebellious text. This is a deep meditation on gender, love, how we've been brought up to think about male and female, and Pratt and Feinberg creating a family. 2003 saw Pratt's poems, The Dirt She Ate, uh, her collected poems, The Dirt She Ate. It won a Lambda Literary Award and was described by the New York Times Book Review as originally as original and startling. And last year, she, uh, she had a new book published called Inside the Money Machine, which is about capitalism and class. She's also published collections of essays and uh, another collection of poetry called Walking Back Up Depot Street, and she's a professor at Syracuse University. So um, I'm going to read a poem just one poem. It's a long poem. It's four, uh, about four pages. And uh, I wanted to read you, actually, this is from her second collection, Crimes Against Nature. I wanted to read you a poem from We Say We Love Each Other because it has this really sexy image of her on the cover. But um, this poem is the poem that uh, I always think about with her, and I remember it for its power. And it's also important to remember that this poem was published over 24 years ago. It's called My Life You Are Talking About. The Ugliness. 
the stupid repetition when I mention my children or these poems or myself as a mother. My anger when someone tries to make my life into a copy of an idea in her head, flat, paper thin. How can I make any of this into a poem? What do I mean by this? For instance, me standing by the Xerox machine, clack, slide, wish. Another teacher I've known, for, I've known her for five years asks what I've been writing lately. And I say, these poems about my children. Holding up pages, her face blanks. I'd never seen that happen. The expression, a blank face, vacant, em emptied. She says, I didn't know you had children. So I say, that's what these are about. Not many people know I have children. They were taken away from me. She says, you're kidding. I say, no, I'm not kidding. I lost my children because I'm a lesbian. She says, but how could that happen with someone with a PhD? I lean against a desk. I want to slap her with anger. Instead, I answer, I'm a pervert, a deviant, low is someone on the street as a prostitute, a whore, I'm unnatural, queer, I'm a lesbian, I'm not fit to have children. I didn't explain. A woman who's loose with men is trash. A woman with a woman is to be punished. I walk away carrying off the poems, useless words, black tracks on flimsy paper, so much for the carryover of metaphor and the cunning and direction of the poet, me, who lures the listener, her, deeper and deeper, with bright images through thorns, a thicket, into a hidden openness, the place beyond the self. See any of the preceding or following poems. So much for the imagination. I don't say, you, you've known for years who I am. Have you never imagined what happened to me day in and out, out of your damned straight world? Why give her a poem to use to follow me as I gather up the torn bits, a path made of my own body, a trail to find what has been lost, what has been taken, when if I stand in a room breathing, sweating a little, with a shaky voice, blood and bones, who tells what happened, I get her disbelief or worse. A baby-faced lesbian, her new baby snug in her closed arms, smiles, matronizing, smug, asks, had I ever thought of having children? Have I, have you ever thought of having children? What I thought as the payphone doctor's voice pronounced jovial, stunning pregnancy, advised philosophy, why he's had five, this one's only my second, was, where would my life be in this concept, mother of two? There was no one around to see. I could cry all I wanted while I sat down and got used to the idea. At a, friend's at a friend's house for dinner, we talked about my boys, her girl, the love affairs of others, how I like mornings in bed with my lover. She complains how sex is hard to get with a three-year-old around, glances at me as if to say, you have it so easy. Does say, well, if you had children. Other side of the door, the two boys half-grown, rest rest gangly in their sleep, 
In bed, her hand slides, cold, doubtful, from my breast. She frets, what are they thinking? While I whisper, hot heat in my breath, how I lost them for touch, dangerous touch. And we would not believe the mean knifing voice that says we lose every love if we touch. We pull close, belly to belly, kiss, push, push, no thought in writhing against ache, our sweating skin like muddy ground. When we come back to being there in bed and to the sleeping presence of children, in a classroom, we, we wind through the ideas about women, power, the loss of children, men, and ownership, the loss of self, the lesbian mother. They have heard me tell how it has been for me. The woman to my left, within hand's reach, never turns her face towards me, but speaks about me. It's just not good for children to be in that kind of home. I'm stripped, naked, whipped, splintered by anger, wordless. I want to break her, slash her. My edged eyes avoid her face. I say, why do you think this? I do not say, what have you lost? What have you ever lost? Later, I say, this is my life you are talking about. She says, I didn't mean it personally. Over the phone, someone I've known for years asks what I am writing now. I say, I'm working hard on some poems about my children. She says, oh, how sweet, how sweet. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Our next writer is Lisa Yee. Lisa Yee's debut novel, Millicent Min, Girl Genius, won the prestigious Sid Fleischman Humor Award. With over 1.5 million books in print, her other novels for young people include Stanford Wong Flunk's Big Time, So Totally Emily Ebers, Absolutely Maybe, and a series about a fourth grader, Bobby vs. Girls Accidentally, and Bobby the Brave, Sometimes. Lisa is also the author of American Girls Kanani Books and Good Luck Ivy. Her latest novel, Warp Speed, is about a Star Trek geek who gets beat up every day at school. A Thurber House children's writer-in-residence, Lisa's books have been named a NPR Best Summer Read, Sports Illustrated Kids Hot Summer Read, and USA Today's Critics Top Pick. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lisa Yee. I'm going to lower this <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, before I start, this is going to be kind of weird, but I blog uh, and, uh, uh, with my peep. So do you guys mind being in the picture? OK, so OK, all right. OK, I'm going to have to put this over here. OK, everybody look fabulous. <laughs> all right, I'm going to do a backup just in case somebody blinked. All right, I'll do this. OK, uh, even, OK, look sexy. There we got it. Okay. Um, when I got the invitation, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, it'll, the blog will appear probably next Monday. If you go to lisayee.com, then you can all see yourselves looking sexy and beautiful in the blog. Um, but when I was invited to, um, to read today, I thought, okay, Truman Capote. I mean, I love 
Truman Capote. And I remember reading like um, Breakfast at Tiffany's and it was just so wonderful. And then seeing the movie, which was great except for the racist parts with Mickey Rooney. But, but the book is better. And then it amazed me that someone who wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's could write In Cold Blood. Beca I mean, totally different. The voice is totally different. He invented a new genre with that book. And I remember the first time I read it, it was like 2 in the morning, because we always read those books at 2 in the morning, right? You know, when you hear these noises outside. And, and it was just like, oh my god. You know, and I knew how it was going to end, but still, it was just, it was a page turner. And, and it was just so amazing. But what I want to read to you um, today is something completely different that he did. And this is a story that I first read when I was a child. And I remember reading it, and at that time, I didn't know who Truman Capote was. I didn't know how old he was. I didn't know where he lived. I didn't know if he was straight or gay. All I knew was that I really liked what he could do with words, and I liked his story. And so this is A Christmas Memory. It was first written in 1956, and it appeared in Mademoiselle magazine. And uh, Truman, I, I know he'd want me to call him by his first name. Uh, Truman has said that this is very autobiographical. Imagine a morning in late November, a coming of winter morning more than 20 years ago. Consider the kitchen of a spreading old house in a country town, a great black stove is its main feature, but there is also a big round table and a fireplace with two rocking chairs placed in front of it. Just today, the fireplace commenced its seasonal roar. A woman with shorn white hair is standing at the kitchen window. She is wearing tennis shoes and a shapeless gray sweater over a summery calico dress. She is small and sprightly like a bantam hen, but due to a long, youthful illness, her shoulders are pitifully hunched. Her face is remarkable, not unlike Lincoln's, craggly like that, and tinted by sun and wind, but it is delicate, too, finely boned, and her eyes are sherry-colored and timid. Oh my, she exclaims, her breath smoking at the window pane. It's fruitcake weather. The person to whom she is speaking is myself. I am seven. She is 60-something. We are cousins, very distant ones, and we live together, well, for as long as I can remember. Other people inhabit the house, relatives, and though they have power over us and frequently make us cry, we are not on the whole too much aware of them. We are each other's best friend. She calls me Buddy, in memory of a boy who was formerly her best friend. The other Buddy died in the 1880s when she was still a child. She is still a child. I knew it before I got out of bed, she says, turning away from the window with a purposeful excitement in her eyes. The courthouse bell sounded so cold and clear, and there are no birds singing. They've, got it. They've gone to warmer country, and yes, oh, Buddy, stop stuffing biscuit and fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. We have 30 cakes to bake. And I'm going to flash forward a bit. Um, so these two, they've been gathering pennies, and they've been saving them to buy whiskey, and they actually both get drunk. Remember, he's seven. But uh, they're going to bake these fruit cakes that they bake every winter. And um, with them is Queenie, her dog. And so they go on these adventures. And on Christmas Day, they're both disappointed with the presents they get because they get practical things, except that they give each other kites, these gorgeous kites that they have made for each other that they fly. And then th there's this. This is our last Christmas together. Life separates us. Those who know best decide that I belong in a military school. 
And so follows a miserable succession of bugle-blowing prisons, grim-revelry-ridden summer camps. I have a new home, too, but it doesn't count. Home is where my friend is, and there I never go. And there she remains, puttering around her kitchen, alone with Queenie, her dog, and then alone. For a few November, she continues to bake her fruitcake single-handed, not as many, but some, and of course she always sends me the best in the batch. Also, in every letter, she encloses a dime wadded in toilet paper. See a picture show and write me a story. But gradually, in her letter, she tends to confuse me with her other friend, the buddy who died in the 1880s. A morning arrives in November, a leafless, birdless coming of winter morning, where she cannot rouse herself to exclaim, oh my, it's fruitcake weather. And when it happens, I know. A message saying, so merely serving me from an severing me, excuse me, a message saying, so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein had already received, severing from me an irreplaceable part of myself, letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why, walking across a school campus on this particular December morning, I keep searching the sky, as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a lost pair of kites hurrying toward heaven. Thank you, Truman. Thank you, Miss Yee. Hope Edelman holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from Northwestern University and a master's degree in writing from the University of Iowa. She is the author of five nonfiction books, including the international bestseller Motherless Daughters, which was published in 16 countries and translated into 11 languages. She is the recipient of a New York Times Notable Book of the Year designation and a Pushcart Prize for Creative Nonfiction. Nearly every July, you can find her at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival in Iowa City and periodically at other conferences and festivals throughout the United States. She teaches regularly in the MFA program at Antioch University, Los Angeles. Please welcome Hope Edelman. Thank you, Noel. Thanks for bringing us all together. Thanks to the other readers. Um, when Noel asked me to um, think about which uh, GLBT writer had inspired me most, I immediately thought, oh, Bernard Cooper, that's an easy one. And he said, well, you know, Bernard is, uh, we've invited Bernard to read, so uh, I don't think that's going to work out. And then a few days later, I got an email saying Bernard couldn't make it. So if this is podcast and Bernard is listening, we're so sorry you're not here, but I'm so glad you're not here, because now I get to read from your work. Um, I'm going to read to you a selection from Bernard's collection, Truth Serum. And um, this is one of my favorite essays ever by any writer. Um, but when I read this book, particularly this essay, I absolutely fell in love with this writing. I think Bernard is one of the most extraordinary descriptive writers that I've ever encountered. And I use this, this uh, essay frequently in my classes to show students what, what beautiful, beautiful language can do to a story, um, his similes, his metaphors, all of it. I'm just going to let the work speak for itself and, and read it to you now. It's called Almost Like Language. I didn't know I was stoned until the eggs I was scrambling began to look like a storm at sea. <laughs> Staring into the bowl, I lost track of time and whisked the fork around and around, mesmerized by foamy yellow waves. When I looked up, Greg was shaking with laughter. He held a frying pan in one hand and with the other pointed at me. 
Just moments ago, I'd told them that the joint we smoked had no effect on me at all. My mouth wasn't dry, my feet weren't tingling, and I wasn't especially hungry. That is not until now. Yeah, I said, nodding at nothing in particular. I looked around the kitchen of his parents' house. Porcelain gleamed like polished marble. Sunlight sifted through lace curtains. The checkered tile vibrated slightly. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, read a needlepoint hanging next to the Cantor's refrigerator. My senses felt so fresh and receptive that the sentiment rang true. Greg took the bowl from my hands, adjusted a burner. A pat of butter hissed and skidded across the surface of the pan. Greg tilted the mixing bowl and down poured a braid of liquid egg. His body gently swayed as he stirred, face flushed from the heat. When he pulled two plates from a high shelf, the shirt sleeve slid down his arm and exposed the rise of his biceps. The odor of eggs made my stomach grumble. One of the last holdouts in my high school, I'd never tried marijuana. Greg was a veteran pot smoker. His sister Jackie always had a stash on hand. And since we had nothing to do that afternoon, he asked if he could turn me on. Will I hallucinate, I'd asked, trying to hide my apprehension. Maybe you'll look at your legs and like, well, no, they're yours for a second. Is that a hallucination? <laughs> in the time it took me to ponder the question, Greg lit a joint and thrust it into my hand. He told me how to hold it and inhale. Blow the smoke out the window, he said. If you need me, I'll be right here. Half an hour later, we were setting our plates at the dining room table and eating scrambled eggs in silence, relative silence. The grinding and suction of my own chewing, intensified by a dry mouth, echoed inside my head, a factory of mastication. <laughs> I knew in a flash that this was happening to Greg, too, and we could barely look at each other for fear of erupting with laughter. Maintain, Greg whispered, <laughs> before he choked on a bite of egg. He began to cough, his curly hair bobbing like a black chrysanthemum. What's wrong, darling, Mrs. Cantor called from the living room. Her meditation group, six middle-aged housewives, were seated on an L-shaped sectional. They tended to gossip and drink peppermint tea for hours before they finally lowered themselves, joints cracking, onto pillows and settled into a tableau of composure, sinking inward and breathing as one. Nothing's wrong, Greg yelled back. I'm just choking on eggs. He looked at me, concerned. That sounded really weird, I said. We couldn't trust ourselves to act normal around Mrs. Cantor, so we decided to abandon our lunch and take refuge in Jackie's room. The older of the two Cantor children, Jackie required privacy. She lived in a converted two-car garage behind the Cantor's house. Greg led me out the kitchen door and into the small, sunlit yard. Paved in concrete, the yard was barren except for a few orange trees growing from a patch of grass remnants of the groves that had once been plentiful in the San Fernando Valley. When Greg knocked on the sliding glass door, Jackie drew back the curtain and warily peered outside. Relieved to see it was only us, she unlocked the door and pulled it open. Her room was cloudy with smoke and ripe with the smell of marijuana. Sitar music wobbled and spun in circles. Greg threw his arm around me the moment we walked inside. I got him stoned, he announced to his sister. Her smile dawned in slow motion. That's beautiful, she said, <laughs> beaming at me through gold rim glasses. Yeah, I said, taking note that this exclamation had replaced my entire vocabulary. Jackie rolled another joint. Her tight joints were the envy of every pothead at our high school, and licked the gum end of the cigarette paper with a single expert pass of her tongue. Greg and I walked around the room as though touring a museum. Tacked on the wall were posters whose phrases, expand your mind, flower power, were printed in psychedelic letters that seemed to bulge and melt beyond meaning. 
While Greg's room still contained the bunk beds and maple desk of his youth, Jackie's room consisted of cast-offs, a tattered chair, a huge wooden spool that she used as a table, and a queen-size mattress on the floor, piled with clothes and records and books. In the far corner of the room stood a cage in which Thelonious, her rhesus monkey, fainted and bobbed like a tiny prize fighter. If anyone but Jackie approached him, Thelonious shrieked and bared his teeth, frantically swinging his hairy hands as if he were trying to toss them off his arms. Jackie had acquired Thelonious from a local pet store a few weeks earlier, and only after a campaign of constant wheedling, her parents were opposed to the idea of a wild animal living in their daughter's room. Every time I'd visited the Cantor's house, I'd heard her plead in a little girl voice, please, can I have a monkey? He'd be so cute, and I'd take really good care of him. Please, can I? Then she would chatter and scratch her armpits, laughing her deep, delirious laugh. It's a miracle that Mr. and Mrs. Cantor never knew their daughter was stoned. The three of us sat cross-legged on the floor, and Jackie lit a fresh joint. Yummy, she rasped, squinting against the smoke. Greg took a drag and his chest expanded. He sat perfectly still until a seed popped and a spark swam off the tip of the joint. Then he blinked and breathed and passed the joint to me. I took a slow toke. Greg and Jackie leaned forward, hands in their laps, their expressions protective and parental, except for the fact that their eyes were glassy, their smiles beatific. The sitar music had stopped who knew how long ago, and the needle skipped in the last groove, a cessation like steady rain. Holding the dope in my lungs, pressure built behind my eyes. Once I let go, a small fraction of the smoke I inhaled wafted out. While we passed the joint, Thelonious chattered and gripped the bars of his cage. He stared at us as if pleading for release. I could barely look at his needy pink face. <laughs> Still, it would have been worse had Jackie let him out. Paroled from his cage, Thelonious ricocheted around the room, yanking people's hair and hanging from their clothes, his fists pinching like vices. If he snatched a pair of sunglasses, keys, or cigarettes, only Jackie could coax him to let go, and not before a tug of war. Once we finished the joint, the roach was placed in an ivory box along with several others. Jackie passed me a goatskin filled with cranberry juice. The sweet, cool stream shot straight to my brain, radiating red. In the dim light, a vinyl miniskirt on Jackie's bed glinted like a shard of glass. Whirls in the wooden table looked as familiar as faces. Jackie put on Jimi Hendrix. Electric guitar throbbed deep in my bones, and I felt as if my body were carved out of sound. When I offered him a drink, Greg nodded yes and bobbed to the drumbeat. He tipped back his head, opened his mouth, and squeezed the goat skin. I liked being high. Anything could happen. I guess I should have thanked Bernard most for the literature that he's given us all. And don't you think it's all interesting that so far all of us who've read have crossed genders? We're all, you know, it just, it just speaks to the power of literature. And good, good writing's good writing, no matter who's written it. Thanks. Born and raised in Detroit, Frederick Smith is a graduate of the Missouri School, Missouri, Missouri School, I was gonna say Montessori School. <laughs> 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 the Montessori School of Journalism, now the Missouri School of Journalism at Loyola University Chicago is the author of two LGBT-focused novels, Down for Whatever, which was a great novel, released in 2005 in Right Side of the Wrong Bed, released in 2008. Right Side of the Wrong Bed was a finalist in the 2009 Land Literary Awards in the Gay Romance category. He continues to write while working as the director of cross-cultural centers at Cal State LA, Frederick Smith. Hello, happy pride. 
We need to celebrate. It's been a bad year for the gays. First Whitney, mm. and then Donna. But thank goodness the Queen kicked off Pride with that big old Queen's Jubilee this week. Wasn't that fabulous? Um, anyway, thank you, Noel. Thank you, Skylight. And um, thank you all for coming tonight. Um, tonight I'm going to read you from the work of a contemporary author, Rashid Darden, who continues to inspire me. Um, he's an author I think all of you should be aware of. He's from Washington, D.C., educated at Georgetown University, and works in LGBT social services and nonprofits in the D.C. area when he's not writing. Um, he's also a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and a service fraternity and a number of um, black writer organizations in DC and nationwide. Um, his critically acclaimed novels include Lazarus, Covenant, and Epiphany, a series of novels following college student Adrian Collins, a black gay student at fictitious HBCU Potomac University, as he grows and develops from a closeted student leader, thinking about pledging a Divine Nine organization, those are the black fraternities and sororities, um, to his first romantic encounter with a campus activist and poet, Savian Cortez, who hates the idea of fraternity life altogether, to an attraction to the campus basketball player, um, campus basketball star player, Isaiah. And it turns into a riveting, riveting love triangle through the whole series, the three book series, The Golden Fraternity Boy, torn between the, ath the athlete and the activist. Rashid's work um, inspires me in many ways. It's contemporary, it's realistic, it's engaging, and it's well written. Um, his life influences me in many ways, too. He's a young and new professional juggling a nine-to-five career, as well as a six-to-ten writing life. Um, he's heavily involved with black LGBT youth causes. Um, he travels the country speaking on behalf of fraternity, black fraternity and sorority life, um, and the intersections with LGBT issues. And he's just an overall nice, neat guy. So I'm going to be reading from his um, third novel, Epiphany. And um, here we see Adrian and Isaiah on a date night. And now Isaiah, who is the campus basketball player, is dealing with an issue that Adrian dealt with um, in the first of the series, how to come out as a popular student as a, at a historically black college. I sat on the floor between Isaiah's legs as he sat on the sofa of my living room. Kaylin was in his room working on an assignment for his business, business ethics class. Orlando was hopefully out getting to know his potential line brothers before their first session after later that night. My housemate Brad was missing in action as well. Although he hadn't said anything directly to us, we were pretty sure he was pledging Kappa. Yuck. <laughs> so that left Isaiah and I to enjoy another date night. This one was my pick, so we were much more low-key than our previous excursion at the Kennedy Center. The dinner choice was takeout soul food that I picked up from a new spot near Howard University. Greens, sweet potatoes, macaroni and cheese, and fried chicken. The entertainment was Isaiah's favorite show, The Wire. Even though the show had long since gone off the air, Isaiah maintained that much of what it depicted was true to life. Maybe not the gay stick-up dude walking down the street in a silk robe, but <laughs> close to it. I didn't feel afraid in Isaiah's neighborhood, but the streets in The Wire did remind me of his block. His large hand spontaneously gave me a shoulder rub as the credits rolled on the third episode that we watched. I think you're right, I said. About what, he asked. I really don't think, I really don't think Tanya came back. Told you. Have you tried to contact her, I asked. 
Hell no. Why would I do that? I'm done with her. You don't think she dropped out because you quit her, do you? Nah, he said. That can't be it. Maybe she went abroad at the last minute. Maybe she's pledging, I said. People just disappear when that happens. I don't know. Why do you care? I don't know. I think it's weird when any black person just disappears from Potomac. I wouldn't worry about her. Our lives are easier without her around. Can you imagine? Yeah, you're right. His strong hands never stop massaging my neck, shoulders, and back. That feels good, I said. I'm going to need it for this damn session tonight. I swear I do not miss being up at all hours of the night. He laughed lightly. Going to put a hurting on them pledges, ain't you? He said, I asked. No, not really, I said. I mean, it gets physical, but not dangerous. Good, he said. That, it's not, that it doesn't get dangerous, I mean. You know I, wouldn't, you know I would lose my damn mind if anything happened to you. I know, I said. Hey, I got to tell you something, Isaiah said, still massaging me. What? I'm going to tell Coach K about us. That we're dating, I asked. Yep. Okay, I said. Already holding onto his legs, I leaned to him just a bit tighter. You okay with that, he asked. Other than not being sure if he needs a special announcement about it, I'm fine with it. I mean, we're out, pretty much. Kinda, so there's nothing new to share, with the public at least. <laughs> I guess you're just giving him a heads up, right? Right. The man is my coach. He needs to know. He says, please, the closest thing to a dad I've had, sort of, if my dad was white and angry all the time. <laughs> I laughed. Yep, that's Coach K, I said. I got up to my knees and turned around to face him. Boy, if you think this is what you need to do, then I'm down with you. No questions asked. I hope he accepts you just as you are. I think we've both been pretty lucky. Most people who know us don't care that we like dudes. I'm hoping he feels that way, Isaiah said. If not, well, fuck him. I'm still playing the best basketball games of my life. That won't change. No doubt, I said. I looked at his perfect lips and slowly leaned forward to kiss him. Suddenly, I heard Kalen bounce up the stairs to our living room. Get a room, you horny bastards, he yelled at us with a faux indignation. Dude, you know this is date night, I shouted, throwing a sofa pillow at my line brother as he turned on the lights. And it's also the night we put the boys online. Are you ready? We got to meet Ed like now. The boys are going to get the boys going to get the call in five minutes. Kaylin was easily the most exuberant of all my line brothers and eager to lead our boys, now nine in number, to the beta light. I looked at my boyfriend and shrugged. Thank you for my date night, he said, pecking me on my lips as he stood up. Thanks for coming, I said. I'll see you later. I let him out the door and watched him walk down the pathway toward the main campus. Thank you. <laughs> Leslie Schwartz is the author of two literary novels, Jumping the Green, out of Simon & Schuster, and Angel's Crest, out of Doubleday. Jumping the Green won the James Jones Literary Society Award for Best First Novel and was published in three languages. Angel's Crest was a book sent 76 pick and was published in nine languages. The film version of the book debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival and the Edinburgh Film Festival in April and June of 2011. It was released nationally in the United States in January. Schwartz was named Calliope Magazine 
Magazine's Woman Writer of the Year in 2004. In addition to her novels, Schwartz has published short stories, articles, essays, and book reviews in various newspapers, glossy magazines, and literary journals. Some of these venues include Poets and Writers. Why are you looking at that? I got this from your website, just so you know. <laughs> this, is from your, like, <laughs> like, this is from your website, so that's why. <laughs> Some of these <laughs> ventures include Poets and Writers. People, I know it's funny when Shavad is looking at me, and I'm like, I pulled this from your website, so don't look at me like I'm crazy. So it's like, <laughs> include uh, teachers and writers, Los Angeles Times, and Sonora Review, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Leslie Schwartz. Wow. Looks like I have a little work to do on my website. <clears throat> uh, Noel, thank you so much for uh, inviting me and all of us. This is such an honor, and um, I'm just delighted to be here. And um, I don't know if this is going to sound weird or not, but it probably will. I mean, Glossy Magazine sounds weird enough. But, um, you know, it didn't occur to me, actually, in, until um, uh, a few people had read that there, I, I actually have a, in my... <clears throat> second novel here <clears throat> that my two favorite characters uh, it's a lesbian couple and I just I don't really I kind of don't think of I don't think of things in terms of you know who you're with or you know gender I, I think of things in terms of how we love each other and what's important in our lives and uh, I'm just grateful that the filmmakers uh, kept them in the movie because I had nothing to do with the screenplay, so it was uh, it was important to me that they kept the two the the two women. Um, <clears throat> I also want to uh, thank Skylight because this is a sort of a second home for me. This is one of my favorite bookstores, and uh, I'm just really grateful to be here tonight and to see old friends and people that I really. Uh, pulled for at certain points in my life. Okay, so I'm reading from uh, Dog Years by Mark Doty, and um, you know, I was afraid this was going to be another one of those like dog books, you know? <laughs> I think they made a movie out of one, and it just, oh, no more dog books. But really, um, uh, what this is is a meditation on, on grief and love and loss and how we suffer through tragedy in our lives and come out of it, you know, different people. And um, uh, I didn't do a whole lot of research actually on Mark Doty. I could read uh, all about him on the back cover, but I think you guys can do that too. Although I do love the picture of his dog, because it looks like my dog. <laughs> but I actually read this as a part of my, um, my MFA, which was a torturous experience. And, uh, and this was one of the best parts uh, of my schooling. I had to read 20 books every semester, and this book moved me and changed me in so many ways. And uh, right before my friend Hope came over to the house, I was like, oh my god, I have to figure out, you know, what, what I'm going to read. And uh, as I was reading it in front of my husband, I cried. And so, so I hope I got that out of my system because uh, this is a scene that for me will always remain, um, and it's short, 
so we won't have to be here all night. But uh, uh, has remained, um, it, it just touched me so deeply because I think that there are moments in our lives when we, when something changes us and we make a choice. And we either are destroyed and ruined by it or we make a choice to move on from it. And so in this scene, um, well, I'll just read it to you. Um, okay. And okay, so his so so this is his lover has has died, and he's with somebody new named Paul, and um, uh, his dogs are Bo and um, I forget the other dog's name, but uh, he's Arden, and um, <clears throat> they're taking a trip. So let me put on my glasses. Okay, actually, better without the glasses. Okay. <laughs> I look better that way anyway. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Writing for glossy magazines, as I do. Okay. <clears throat> the worst moment of my life happened on the Staten Island Ferry. Nobody knew. It was entirely invisible, taking place on an internal level beneath the surface, and it terrified me so completely, I didn't talk about it at all, even to Paul. January 2001, we've been to New York for a few weeks, and we take the dogs to Sandy Hook in the, far, in the car for an evening. Sandy Hook's an undeveloped promontory on the Jersey Shore, which pokes up toward New York Harbor, a beautiful, wild place of dunes and scrubby coastal forests. The trails are snowy at the edges, the air sharp with salt, ice, and pine, and the dogs love it. Every day, we've been performing our afternoon ritual. Bo and I get off and go off into the bedroom and sit quietly. Oh, I should tell you, Bo is his, one of his dogs who's dying, and he has to perform this ritual of um, medication. So, Bo and I go off into the bedroom and sit quietly, and in a bit, I jab the skin beneath, beneath his shoulder blades somewhere with a needle, and I let as much of a sack of clear fluid as I can, drip down under his skin, nourishing his body. It's become a sort of meditation time. It's awful, but I try to make of it a stillness for him. A companionable half an hour. Still, he seems weak and tired. Arden's a bit startled as well, finding himself in New York City. Every day we take the elevator down to the lobby, stroll north towards Washington Square, and enter the surprising arena of the dog park, a location of fascination for the dogs, but doubtless some tension too. <laughs> a little too much for them now, all that jostle and rowdy life. Whatever the case, they love Sandy Hook, they are running the trail, sniffing the snow, rolling. It seems like the old days, sprightly dogs sporting in the cold. When we get to the beach, Bo finds a trove of clamshells, the big empty casings of sea clams, and begins to gnaw on them with abandon, crunching them up in his teeth. Is there some mineral in there he's craving? They're worn out but clearly revitalized when it's time to go. Bo leaping into the back of the station wagon, Arden putting his front paws up on the tailgate so I can do the rest. 
We take the outer bridge crossing, crossing to Staten Island and then the ferry back to Manhattan, leaving the car down in the belly of the boat. And no one could know that in nine months' time, this couldn't be done. That the terror that will strike New York will make such a car trip impossible. We go up, the four of us, to the bow of the boat, and though it's cold, we're standing outside, watching the dark gray and tumultuous water over the, over the rail, and the dogs can see it too, through the square openings of the side of the solid railings, which frame a spew-marked square of rushing water. I'm looking down at Beau, looking into that opening, his nostrils and eyes turn toward the water below and then back up to the horizon line where gray water meets only slightly less gray sky. And it's at this precise moment that something in me breaks. The purpose of poetry, it has been said, is to bring more of the unsayable into the world of speech. But poetry fails me in my attempt to evoke that moment. It's the weight of every grief I've been carrying. It's the way I've steeled myself to survive Wally's death over the years, of his illness, the death whose sixth anniversary is days away. The way I've willed myself to go on after, bound and determined to be strong enough to continue. It's the way I've fallen in love with Paul and have loved my hapless aging dogs participating in the world of the living while my heart is still shadowed, turned in on its own wound. No matter that it's a minor miracle in the middle of the great epidemic of my time that I'm here at all. I'm 47. I'm on the downward slope of middle age, conscious of the changing of my own body and my own face, mirrored in these aging animals. It's a lifetime of acting strong, saying I won't be submerged, not by my mother's drinking, or my father's disengagement, my lousy marriage, or the odds against queer people, or the plain daily struggle of being in the world. None of it is going to stop me. That's what I've always thought, how I've acted, which is why now, on this blasted ferry, in a bitter early January dusk, the city and its towers just coming into their twinkling details ahead of me, I am about to be knocked over by a wave of vulnerability so large, I will not be able to stand up. Oh, I will on the outside. I will not do what I want to do, which I am mortified to admit is to drown myself and my dog. I can see it so clearly. I want to take Bo in my arms and hold tight to his thinning body and climb onto the top of the rail and put my face against his neck and then I will hold on tight when we hit that cold water so that he will not suffer but go down in the cold with me. I have never wanted so clearly to die in my life. I have never felt so little resist resistance to this impulse. This is all nearly wordless. I do not articulate what is happening to me. I can't, couldn't begin even if I tried to. My impulse is to close self-protectively around this moment I don't understand and am terrified by. 
I do not do anything to harm myself, and I swear it's mostly because if I do jump, how will I know that my dear boy, my dog, will actually drown with me? Won't he want to live? Won't he swim as long as he can and therefore suffer? And of course, there is the matter of the man beside me holding on to Arden's leash, who loves me and then who would like to have a future and whom I do not want to harm by making such a brutal, unthinkable rupture. I don't know if he feels it at all. The cataclysm in me that I am on, hiding because I am so afraid of it, then and there, my will snaps. And then the ferry docks, and we, wake our we make our way back to Thompson Street, park the car in the garage, and back into the apartment, give each dog the bowl containing his special diet, then find ourselves some dinner in the village somewhere. I'm so proud of everybody. Everyone's so great. Imani Tolliver's poetry has been recognized by a Latin Literary Fellowship at the Folger Shakespeare Library and the John J. Wright Literary Award at Howard University. She has been honored with a certificate of appreciation by the city of LA for her work as a promoter, host, and publicist in support of literary arts in Southern California and served as a poet laureate, po poet laureate for the Watts Tower Art Center. Imani also volunteers, marches, and pitches in whenever she is able, like tonight, in support of the vibrant and beautiful LGBT community of which she is wholly and happily a part. Ladies and gentlemen, Imani Tolliver. Good evening. I'm honored to be here. Um, the White Fathers told us I think, therefore I am. And the black mothers in each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. For women then, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within, which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Audre Lorde. Um, uh, she means so much to me. She's the first person who came to mind. Uh, and um, there are a few words. I'm going to read from her essay, the or her speech. It began as a speech, The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. So I'll be reading some excerpts uh, to give you a few um, uh, facts about Audre Lorde. Uh, in her own words, uh, she is a black lesbian mother warrior poet. Uh, shortly before her passing, she re renamed herself Gamda Alisa, Adisa, which means warrior, she who makes her meaning known. Gamda Adisa. She is the author of several books, including most famously The Cancer Journals, Sister Outsider, Essays and Speeches, and Zami, A New Spelling of My Name. 
1980, with Barbara Smith and Sherry Moraga, she co-founded Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press. And from 1991 until her passing in 1992, she was the New York State Poet Laureate. Um, uh, she means so much to me. She's just like my special angel on my shoulder, uh, whether I'm marching or feeling like I'm marching when I, I'm at, someone says something ignorant about us, all of us, whether no matter what race we are or what gender we are, it just comes up, up in the OC. <laughs> and, uh, and she encourages me to speak. Uh, she's like my little nappy angel that tells me that my silence will not protect me. And um, even if I don't read anything else she's written, it's those words that resonate with me most and always. So here are excerpts from, from that speech. I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, that the speaking profits me beyond any other effort, or any other effect, I'm sorry. In becoming forcibly and essentially aware of my mortality and, what I, and of what I wished and wanted for my life, however short it might be, priorities and omissions became strongly etched in a merciless light. And what I most regretted were my silences. Of what had I ever been afraid? To question or to speak as I believed could have meant pain or death. But we all hurt in so many different ways, all the time. And the pain will, will either change or end. Death, on the other hand, is the final silence. And that might be coming quickly now, without regard for whether I had ever spoken what needed to be said, or had only betrayed myself into small silences, while, someday, while I planned someday to speak, or waited for somebody else's words. If I was going to die, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself, my silences have not protected me. Your silences will not protect you. What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them in silence? Because perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears. Because I am a woman. Because I am black. Because I am a lesbian. Because I am myself. A black woman warrior poet doing my work come to ask you, are you doing yours? In the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of her own fear, fear of contempt, of censure, of some judgment or, or recognition, of challenge, of annihilation. But most of all, I think, we fear the visibility without which we cannot truly live. And that visibility which makes us most vulnerable is that which also is the source of our greatest strength. Because the machine will try to grind you into dust anyway, whether or not we speak. 
We can sit in our corners, mute forever, while our sisters and ourselves are wasted, while our children are distorted and destroyed, while our earth is poisoned. We can sit in our safe corners, mute as bottles, and we will still be no less afraid. Each of us is here now because in one way or another, we share a commitment to language and the power of language and the reclaiming of that language which has been made to work against us. For those of us who write, it is necessary to scrutinize not only the truth of what we speak, but the truth of that language by which we speak it. Primarily for us all, it is necessary to teach by living and speaking those truths which we believe and know beyond understanding. Because in this way alone can we survive by taking part in a process of life that is creative and continuing, that is growth. And it is never without fear of visibility the harsh light of scrutiny and perhaps judgment, of pain, of death. But we have all lived through all of those already in silence, except death. We can learn to work and speak when we are afraid in the same way we have learned to work and speak when we are tired. For we have been socialized to respect fear more than our own needs for language and definition. And while we wait in silence for that final luxury of fearlessness, the weight of that silence will choke us. The fact that we are here and I speak these words is an attempt to break that silence and bridge some of those differences between us for it is not difference which immobilizes us, but silence. And there are so many silences to be broken. Audre Lorde. We have one more writer I'm going to bring up, but at this time I just want to applaud all the writers so far. I really wanted to cry. I just thought you were all amazing and moving. Um, and thank you. I know some of us drew, drove from very far away <laughs> to come here. Um, and uh, I just wanted to um, say something about this next writer. You know, I, um, you may have gotten my email that um, uh, the city of Los Angeles is putting out a writing contest for LGBT Heritage Month. And um, there are different kinds of heritage months. There's Asian American, uh, Latino, African American Women's Heritage Month, you know, and the list goes on. And, um, and they all have this, this month, right? And um, they actually, we all have this month, and, um, and they actually stopped the writing contests because uh, no one was entering. Yeah, and um, surprisingly, we're going to do, not surprisingly, but um, we're going to be doing the LGBT writing contest again next year because we got so many people who submitted. Um, this is the only third time, this was the only second time we've ever done anything like that for the city of Los Angeles. And I think one of the reasons why we got so many entries is because I think there are still a lot of voices that need to be heard, you know, a lot of writers that need to be, to be, just to speak. And um, the, uh, the contest was open to uh, uh, people, um, individuals in, from grade 6 through 12, 
Okay, and um, we, we they could submit a video, a song, poems, essays, um, and we had to uh, debate who would come in third, with debate who would come in second, um, but there was one clear winner, um, and I'd like to introduce you to him now, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Jesse Navarro. Thank you. Um, first of all, I just want to say that all of you authors are great with your words. <laughs> um, I'm not very descriptive, but I just uh, wanted to say that you guys are great at reading, and I have to pick up some of your guys' books because I haven't really delved into LGBT fiction, fiction nonfiction writing in general. So. Uh, I don't know, I'm going to have to save up some money. <laughs> um, I wish I could say that I had a favorite writer, but I think I take something from all the books that I read. So, Sadly, I can't say that I have a, a favorite writer. Um, so here's my poem, and it is called, it is titled, Our Heritage, and it goes like this. We will stand for whom we are. Against all odds, we will not back down. We won't give way to the labels placed upon us, even if that is all we're known for. We will stand against what we know is unfair and vow to change it. In the process, we may lose many, but not in vain. We will hold their dream, same as our own, together. We will lighten the load of each other and won't abandon one another. Our past brothers and sisters shaped what we have now, and as tribute, we will shape what will be next. So stand by me so we can become us. Shout with me so we can show them we are proud. Cry with me so we can show them we are human, and love with me so we can genuinely show them how. But most of all, be equal with me, because that is our dream. And our dream, along with the traditions and values that we hold, will come to be known as our heritage. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all very much for coming. I have some pink lemonade to celebrate the occasion. Thank you all, I love you all, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.